Welcome to Axios Recap. I'm Naomi Shaven, and I'm filling in for Dan this week. Today is Friday, August 14th. Retail spending last month was up, Auckland, New Zealand is locked down, and we're focused on how touring musicians are getting by. This year has been devastating for the live music industry. An April estimate from trade publication Polestar projected that the industry stood to lose nearly $9 billion if, quote, the rest of 2020 were to remain dark. It's August, and 2020 seems sure to remain dark. At this point, it's unclear when or if concerts could come back even in 2021. We explored the ramifications of this for independent music venues in a previous show with Senator Amy Klobuchar, who co-sponsored a bill aimed at helping those venues survive. But touring musicians and their crews face a really difficult situation, too. Some might qualify for certain unemployment benefits. They can sell merch and lean on revenue from streaming. But it's really not the same. Touring is a critical revenue stream for many artists. Musician Marissa DeBeese told Vulture earlier this year that when her tour was canceled, her band lost all of the income that they expected to live off of for six months. Bassist Johnny Richardson told MarketWatch that 90% of his income comes from playing live. Of course, not playing live and not creating music aren't the same thing, and a lot of artists are still writing and releasing music and finding ways to share it with fans online. The UK-based band Glass Animals released an album this week, complemented by an interactive website that looks like a Windows 98 desktop, a number of music videos, and a text message platform so that fans can connect with the band members. To get a sense of what it's like to release an album into this environment, we're joined now by Dave Bailey of Glass Animals. Dave, let's start here. You released an album this week, and I have to imagine that being on Zoom with me right now is not where you imagined you would be to promote it. If this year had gone normally and you released this album, what would the release have looked like for you and the band? Oh, it would have looked really different. I think we had this huge plan ready to launch the album. It was all based on live music. We were going to do these shows at this venue called Red Rocks. That's like my favorite, most beautiful venue on the side of a mountain in Colorado. And we were going to do two nights there and have all our friends, all our musician friends come and play with us, basically. It was going to be like a party celebration. And we'd probably be jetting around, I don't know, playing some TV show and spontaneous shows all over the place. Let's talk about this summer. I used to cover music and I've always thought of summer as basically the biggest season for touring musicians. You've got festivals, you can do these kinds of big outdoor shows that you mentioned. What has it meant for you as a working musician to lose this summer of touring? It's been really tough personally and emotionally just because we had this huge plan written out and it was like, it was perfect. We'd spent a year crafting it and ready to launch this album like this and tearing that in half was was tough because of, uh, because of all the work that I got into it and also because we knew that a lot of like crew a lot of people depend on the touring business to survive now. We employ people. And that was a really hard thing to tell them is that, yeah, we're basically pulling absolutely everything. But we found ways to kind of re just uh, some people are doing things they never thought they'd have to do, as am I. But our crew are doing the same thing. They're jumping into new roles and we found space for all of them, which is, is great. So happy about that. It sounds like you've had to pivot a lot. And I'm curious about the strategy around that to keep yourselves and everybody who depends on you afloat. Are you sort of emphasizing online activity and streaming more? What does that look like for you at this point? 
Yeah, so we're still involving them in all the kind of live crew in streaming shows. And we've got a couple of things in the works and their virtual in-stores and things that we've been doing. And there's I'm still kind of planning for future tours. So we've tried to do as much of that in advance as possible to keep them kind of ticking over. That's basically what we've done with the touring crew and then with the management crew and everything. We've gone into hyperdrive trying to create stuff, trying to move the entire plan over from a live music plan which was a very comfortable space for us. We spent a lot of time touring to something completely internet-based. So yeah, they've been incredibly busy. Sorry, I apologize to all of our management team and label. <laughs> I know that you guys have leaned into very creative, interactive websites and other things to complement the albums you've put out previously. But it does seem like the pandemic must have changed or maybe even emphasized that aspect of the way that you release music. I'm curious if you could talk about that online interactive component. We had to learn a huge amount. I guess the first thing was trying to see if we should adapt the actual like art, the music being the main thing. But strangely, the music was actually written while I was sort of in a personal lockdown a couple of years ago. Anyway, our, like my best friend and our drummer had a really terrible accident. We didn't know if he'd survive. And the future was up in the air. We cancelled everything for the next year so he could recover. And present was a bit too scary to think about. And I think when your future is a bit bleak and the present is a bit bleak, you tend to go back and look at memory in the past. So the album is about memory in the past. And I found that weirdly when lockdown came for the coronavirus, it, our drummer is absolutely fine now, by the way, he's made an amazing recovery. But when the lockdown hit, I found a lot of people digging back in memory. So the music didn't really have to change. It kind of lent itself quite well to the situation. But then we realized, yeah, making like music videos and things was going to be really tricky so we just <laughs> did what we could with the situation i had a whole film sent to my house and i just set it up alone in my kitchen which annoyingly is three stories up so i had to carry everything up all the stairs on like the hottest day england has ever had and you kind of play with that and the video it looks slick for the first half and then it flips around you see the behind the scenes and how diy it actually is I don't know. I liked the fact that we could start playing with the fact that, yeah, using lockdown is like a, I don't know, something interesting to play with in these creative things. I want to ask about that. At the beginning of the pandemic, people kept asking what kind of art would come out of this time. That music video that you made for Heat Waves seems like it could be something that we look back in retrospect and really think of as a quintessential piece of art from this time. I'm curious if you could describe that video and also the process behind making it, because it seems like you had to crowdsource that quite a bit. I think that's my favorite video so far that we've done in this pandemic. It's basically a song about being able to like save a relationship and knowing that it's over. And I saw the parallel between that and the live music world. So the video is a bit of a twist on that. It kind of plays on the live music side of that. And I went down a road, two doors down from my house and put pieces of paper saying, I'm going to be here at seven o'clock with a wagon outside one end of the road if you could just film me outside of your window on your phone and upload the videos to this dropbox we're gonna make a music for we're gonna try to make a music video out of it i had no idea if it was gonna work but it works like it got to like five minutes to seven and everyone started leaning out of their windows and being like what's going on and everyone was shouting at each other and you got this like sense of togetherness you can really only get otherwise at like a concert it just felt ah it clicked it was very lucky and everyone sent these videos and we stitched them together and then I actually walked down the street performing and turned into a music venue and performed to an empty concert hall and it was just a commentary on what the live music industry looks like right now but it was the beginning was the most wholesome thing I've ever done it was great I want to go back to something that you said about the circumstances under which you made this album. They do have this eerie kind of parallel, it sounds like, to the moment that we're all in now. And nostalgia has been one of the big emotional effects of this period. This very intense nostalgia for what was and what we used to be able to do. And that feeling comes through so strongly in this album. 
I'm curious if there's almost like a strange way in which this album has found a deeper connection with its audience right now than it might have in a different time. I think so. We actually thought about pushing the album way back when the pandemic really broke out. But the parallel just seemed too, I don't know, it seemed too strong not to. All my friends and family that I was speaking to were talking about the movies that they were watching. And it was all stuff that they grew up with, listening to records that they grew up with. They were finding comfort in the past. And that really is just exactly what this album was about. And people started recognizing that. And when we started recognizing that people were recognizing it, we were just like, oh, let's, let's do it. When we released the song Dreamland, which was like the title track, and each line in that kind of tackles a sort of nostalgic feeling, and each line is then explored later in another song in slightly more depth, the response to that was pretty... That was when I finally felt like, okay, this is all right. Dave, thank you so much for joining us. Pleasure. Yeah, thanks so much for having us. Welcome back. What we're watching today is Epic Games. Epic Games, the maker of Fortnite, is suing Apple over its in-app payment policies. The lawsuit is, to paraphrase my colleague Ina Freed, the boiling point in what was, until recently, a simmering antitrust battle over the Apple App Store. Developers had been accusing Apple of harming competition by promoting Apple apps over competitors and taking a cut that could be as high as 30% of subscriptions and in-app purchases. Tim Cook defended the App Store in his recent testimony to the House Judiciary Subcommittee on Antitrust. But his remarks didn't really put any of these concerns to rest. A lawsuit of this nature seemed inevitable. Meanwhile, the European Commission already has open investigations into how the App Store handles competitors to Apple apps and how it handles payment. We'll be watching how the lawsuit and those investigations play out. And finally, today we're watching economic recovery specifically uneven economic recovery. Reporting from the Washington Post found that jobs for the highest wage earners have largely come back since the beginning of the pandemic. But less than 50% of jobs that pay less than $20 an hour that were lost have come back. Meanwhile, with the stock market making a comeback too, the Post concluded that, quote, the wealthy have mostly recovered. The bottom half remain far from it. This dynamic has caused some economists to call this recovery K-shaped because of that disparity and suggest that policies need to be enacted to address this. Congress, meanwhile, remains on a kind of recess as negotiations for a stimulus package drag on. And we're done. Big thanks for listening and to producers Carol Alderman and Tim Shovers. Have a great National Creamsicle Day. And we'll be back Monday with Dan with another Axios Recap podcast.